Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Eating Habits Podcast. In this week's episode, I catch up with my buddy, Gerald Sombright. You may remember him from his appearance on Top Chef Season 14, where we cooked it out together in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, He also just got awarded a Michelin star for his work at Knife and Spoon down in Orlando, Florida. So uh, mad props for that. And quick heads up, we had a little recording issue, technical difficulty with this um, with this recording. We lost a little bit of the footage, but it's still a great conversation, and I'm happy to share it with you all. So enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Gerald Sunbright, and you're listening to Eating Habits. Right on. Hey, Gerald, thanks for joining me, man. What's going on, my brother? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good now. So I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while now but I figured I'd work out the kinks a little bit first before I got you on here. (laughs) Let's start out. You've had a pretty big year, huh? Yeah. A year and a half ago, you opened Knife and Spoon down there. Fast forward, you just won a Michelin star. Dude, what's going on? You're on fire. (laughs) I think the pandemic uh, really, you know, we, we opened Knife and Spoon in the pandemic. So, you know, opening a restaurant at any time is, is already a, a nightmare. Opening a restaurant in a pandemic is, is borderline uh, insanity. You know, if you, if you want to name anything, worst thing you can do, it's kind of crazy. Like when you think about the time that we spent and the energy that we placed into that restaurant, it's kind of as if you've opened a restaurant three or four times as you've gone through the process from losing people to getting new people to retraining to working all out of the kinks of, of, of opening a restaurant to, to the GM being the hostess because there's no hostess. You know, nobody wants to do those those positions. So it was, it was, it was really eye-opening. But that time really taught me a lot about what, what was important, like being able to spend time with family, being able to see my kids breakfast, lunch, and dinner for for the first times in their lives. So it it was a pretty eye-opening experience for me, but it was also a really really strange and unique circumstance as a culinarian because I watched the industry really change as a chef, and it was different post-pandemic than it was before. And um, it, it was really hard. I'm wondering what your experience is after that. So hit me. What do you got? Yeah, I mean, I guess post-pandemic, I mean, let's talk about pre-pandemic. Uh, you and I were, were opening a restaurant at the same time, running neck and neck for uh, USA Today, best new restaurant in America. I don't know uh, I don't know what uh, your business partner was doing, but I know he did something. <laughs> um, but we came in second place to Tempest being, being first place. And, and the people that I've known that have gone to Tempest would um, – almost say all of the feedback that I ever had was so positive that it almost felt as if we superseded the bubble, you know, like we, we were able to hit it out of the park at a time when people were just trying to hold on for their life, which is, which is a strange thing to say. It's a strange thing to be one of the best restaurants in the country at a time that the country is shutting down more restaurants than it ever has. So that was a it was just a strange strange feeling and a strange experience to have, and then um, I guess post pandemic I would sum it up to to 
say when we opened the restaurant in the pandemic, we had 276 applicants. Uh, Post-pandemic, <laughs> we opened a position and uh, you're lucky if you get six people that, that apply for the job. And, and two of them used to be plumbers. You know, they don't, they don't even have any business being in the culinary world. So it's just been a, it's just been a, a strange thing to experience. Everybody wanted to get back to work when there was no work. And then everybody realized this is not the work that we want to do. And I think that we as an industry did a disservice to everybody who worked in the industry and in, in kind of dismissing them and letting them go because of the the liabilities in our business, of the, 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 the fact that it's, it's hard to run a restaurant and stockpile money that you can just use to pay people even when they're not coming to work because the profit margins are so low, the stresses are so high, and the consistent amount of variables that you didn't think about are, are popping up every day. So, I mean, even I was working in hotels and they, they let some people go, a lot of people go, and that left a real sour taste in people's mouths. And they said, if I put this much effort into this industry and I'm this disposable, I never want to go back to it. So it was crazy. Did you, did you guys open knife and spoon? Like <laughs> thinking, Hey man, we need to win a, we need to win a star. We need to, you know, what was that like for you? Well, we, we, we thought about, uh, you know, you see like Vogue magazine was excited about the restaurant. You saw like, USA Today voted it really high. Every publication in the city voted it very high. And then we had a we had a service structure that we knew would, would buy us an audience with Michelin, right? We had the service structure. You got a front waiter, a maitre d', a back waiter, um, tiers of service. So we knew that, that Michelin would definitely be looking for those tiers of service. And we also knew that the guy was doing this inaugural year coming to Florida. And then when you look around, when you look around the town, you're like, well, who would they give this award to, right? And then you can name off 10, uh, 15 restaurants. When you look at certain cities, Miami, you probably can name off 30. But when you look at Orlando and Tampa, you knew that the, the talent pool or, or the caliber of restaurants was pretty small. So then when you look at your restaurant, I mean, the sourcing that I did in Knife and Spoon was insane. We ordered from a, a mushroom guy, a caviar guy, a oyster guy, uh, the meat from 44 Forms. There's a guy who who um, is at the docks getting us fresh fish, texting us every week. So once you look at just the raw product that we had was such a high caliber um, that we knew that it really put us in the in the running for Michelin, even more so than James Beard, because uh, James Beard is more chef personality driven then I would say like a cuisine driven. But it, it was something that we, we definitely knew. Once the conversation came up, we knew we would be a part of the conversation. You and I worked for Michael Mina. I, I worked for Michael Mina specifically to work for a Michelin star chef. And it's a strange, wild thing to think that I'm now a Michelin star chef. Like, because I did that experience just to, just to have that under my belt, never thinking that I would be able to ever touch you know, 20 years we've been thinking about this, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. so no. we would ever touch it. We just we just knew that it was part of our career that would be looming over us to tell us how bad we suck, you know, <laughs> because, we, because we never achieved it. Right. Well, you achieved it, man. So what does that feel I know. like? What's that feel I like? mean, um, John Tezar texted me the next morning and was like, go get the newspaper. You're on the front cover of it, which which is just kind of crazy. 
John Tezar and myself, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud. Like John Tezar, architect, right? He designed it, but I was the builder and the resident of the house. So I was there every day, day in and out, making sure that everything was going well. And it was, it was very interesting to see so much love from my local media, my local restaurant community, even, even the people, right? You know, like behind the scenes, you think, I had to tell my sous chef, I was like, yeah, you, you, you talk about like, we could never achieve this because you work here, right? And, and you yeah. see like behind the scenes and you know the struggles and you know that the order didn't come through right and they shorted us here and, and this is the fifth time we've changed this product because they, they don't have it anymore. It just yeah. don't exist. And I said, but when you go out front and you sit down in the restaurant, you really realize you're having a phenomenal experience. And that's what it's about. You, you don't let people don't need to see beyond the veil. You just need to make sure that when they cross that fourth wall, that they see exactly what you want them to see. And you do exactly what you do. Honest, true, pure, very impeccable quality of food. And that, that's something to be said. You know, no, nobody I don't think nobody in. in Orlando is ordering from as many people as we are. It's a headache when you place an order, but it's, it's, it's crazy when you think about the food quality. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on that. I'm super proud of you, dude. That's, that's yeah, so amazing. And then there's also, there's also one piece to it that I, that I never, that I haven't talked about is that um, as far as I know, first black male chef to went to earn a Michelin star, which is also very crazy. There's the chef of, um, Maiden in D.C. who kind of assumed the role after the restaurant had already won a Michelin star. But I actually did the groundwork, hired the people, trained the people, sourced the food, ordered the food, controlled the food costs, controlled the labor costs, was actually there um, from day one to create this program and to earn a Michelin star. is pretty, pretty remarkable. It's pretty strange to be like, oh, there's no black men who's ever won a Michelin star because it seems like it's 2022. We should that should have already happened, but it's also pretty remarkable to be able to speak to that and be able to think about like a younger version of yourself looking for faces like your own that stand at the top and, and what you can achieve because somebody's opened that door, which is cool. Hell yeah, man. I'm super proud cool. of you. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause you know, I, I did, I did a um, episode of the podcast with my buddy, Greg Collier um, in Charlotte. Right. You know, Greg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know him. I do know him. I love it. I love his restaurant. Yeah, man. He's awesome. And he's a great dude. He is, awesome. he is our warrior poster child for black chefs, right? Like yes. he, is, he is all about um, creating opportunities, pushing the, the role of black chefs forward into the forefront of people's kind of um, site and, and just putting out amazing products. I think he's got, a, he's got like three or four, operations opening in the next year yeah, yes something fucking crazy like that and i think he just had a baby too like he's like, <laughs> this guy's like this just like he's, he's unbelievable <laughs> what, 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 are, what are your thoughts about that you as a as a young cook coming up through some of these kitchens i mean you've worked for you know you mentioned michael mina you've worked for some other super talented chefs like really well-regarded guys what was that experience like for you were there other black cooks, black chefs that you were working for? What was the experience like? Did you ever, you know, imagine that you would be leading a team at this caliber, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, I mean, I think that evolution is, is uh, 
is unstoppable, right? You, you know that you're going to eventually stand behind the piano, as we, as we would say when we were younger cooks. And you, you think about like your, I guess, you know, in a certain sense in cooking, I didn't, I never thought about my race that much because I, I thought that once we crossed the threshold of the kitchen, I was just a cook. You know, that's what was important to me, being the best cook in the building. That's what I was fighting for. Like, God dang, this guy on saute can bang, and I can't I can't pick up as many dishes as him when I work the station, right? So we was all I was always trying to get to that glory to be I really wanted, you know, after it's funny, I walked on Top Chef lost first episode, but am highly respected by my peers in my industry. And I think that for as I always say, I wanted the streets to respect me. Like the people who actually do it, who actually touch it, not necessarily the people who stand above us and say who's good, picking who's good or bad or can get certain accolades. And once once I had that from all of my peers, I can pick up the phone in, in any city and say, hey, I need a place to drop my mise en place because I'm doing an event. I, I, I have felt like I made it even from that standpoint. So I never... Um, I never thought about my race in that sense. I did think about it when I was a young cook and, and when I when I saw Patrick Clark, when I saw the first book that they made for Patrick Clark and, and heard this name and was like shocked that I had never, I was looking at Danielle and, and Joel Latunes and, and the brothers in France and Paul Bocuse. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I was looking at uh, all inspiration was from French French males or or white males, but those was just the best cooks, the Charlie Trotters and the Thomas Kellers and uh, all of these names that you heard. So I was I was always looking towards the inspiration of what was going on the plate. And then I heard about Patrick Clark and it kind of shifted that I could speak to my race as well, which was which was just different. Um, it, it gave me somebody to look up to. Yeah, I mean, my, my experience like early on, like work, working for Michael and Aqua and the Cirque and stuff. Right. If you, if you earned a spot on the team, it didn't matter if you were black, white, Chinese, right. like it didn't matter. Like you, if you were on the team, like if you could cook your ass off, that's all that mattered. Like if you right. weren't going to crumble on the line, <laughs> you were good. You know? Right. Yeah. After they added two dishes to your station that day, you couldn't even do the, 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 the eight dishes yesterday, you know, and they added two dishes like Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the fact of uh, you tornaying vegetables on national television. <laughs> then I fucking burnt them. <laughs> just like, <laughs> like that. First that tornado, them, they were perfect. And then I went over to the stove and burnt the shit out of them. It's like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> just went super classic. It's just, it's so funny, like being trained at a certain time what comes yeah. out of you under pressure is just those classics. Like that, that's yeah. the same school. Well, and you know, and, and at that point, like, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember we should talk about this a little bit, like that first day, right? <laughs> like, so I didn't know, I only knew maybe like, I mean, I, I, even for us, like the new, like the new Jacks versus right, like the, the, right. the veterans, right? The new Jacks, I maybe only knew like one or two people. Right, right. Like, I, like, and, and I didn't even know them. I just kind of like knew of them. I was like, huh, okay, right. cool. All right, this is neat. And then, um, you know, walking into that kitchen, first of all, it's fucking huge. Right? Nice. Like, 
I walked in, nice. I was like, oh my God, like, where is the range? <laughs> it's like it's over there. I was like, what? <laughs> it's over there? <laughs> oh my God. And I was, I was on that first station, like, Tom. Yeah, yeah, the farthest away. The farthest away it could be. Couldn't be no further. I fucking rolled my pants up, dude. I rolled them up to my knees. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a long, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> but it's funny. So, so that first episode, right? We had to do the, uh, the chicken, right? It was like, I think Tom gave us the chicken challenges, like as many dishes as you can come up with. <laughs> right. We had like an hour to cook or something yeah. crazy like that. Exactly. Aggressive. What do you want to do? And I just, I remember the, the clock ticking, right? And I was like, all right, I, I'm going to break the chicken down first, right? Because I can just do that with my eyes closed. That'll give me a minute to kind of think about what I'm doing. Right. So I broke the chicken down and then just immediately was like, just tornado vegetables. That's like, I feel so <laughs> comfortable doing that because I've done it for so long. I was just going to tornado vegetables and I'll figure out what to do from there. <laughs> what was That's where I'm starting. What was going through your mind? Uh, first thing that was going through my mind was, where's the sanitizer? And I remember we was having this conversation backstage, like, yeah. how do I get to the sanitizer? And then um, the producer, she was like, trust me, you won't be worried about that. And I was like, it's just in my DNA. I can't not worry about that. Yeah. I need to sanitize my board. keep my station clean. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it was like, trust and believe, you're not going to worry about that. Yeah. And you know what was going through my mind, honestly, as like a, a, a fool? was don't fry chicken the first episode because I, I wanted to do it right like i wanted to brine it buttermilk it and do the whole thing so i was yeah. just telling myself don't fry chicken you gotta say that for later you gotta say that yeah. for later and i should have just fried the chicken you know what i'm saying should have just been like break it down fry it and make a side man and that's it be done with it so stupid yeah and all the people who have my fried chicken before is just like why didn't you fry chicken i'm like Jesus, it's a two-day process, man. Come on. Well, listen, I'm glad that you brought it up because I was eliminated <laughs> twice on top <laughs> for cooking chicken. Once <laughs> <laughs> was a once was a was a pretty pretty epic elimination. Like yeah, one, one time was like like so honorable that it was like yeah, I'm out deuces. Right. Well, I had to do something special so that people wouldn't realize that I, you know, I lost on chicken, right? <laughs> oh, exactly. Right. So, so let's, so let's talk about your experience kind of leading up to Top Chef, right? So you're from, you're from St. Louis, right? Yeah. Yes. So you uh, St. Louis. Tell me the story. Uh, pretty much. Uh, I worked in, um, I worked in hotel. I was doing all these odd jobs, like uh, temp service jobs trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had always worked at like a Jack in the Box or like a food service place or like a fast food restaurant. And so then I got this opportunity to be like a prep cook slash dishwasher at this hotel. And it was the first time that I had worked with chefs. And the chef, Doug Knopp was his name. He was, he had this photo, black and white photo on the board of, uh, of a man, like on the, where the schedule was posted at on the court board. And I was like, who? One day I asked him, who is that guy? And he was like, I thought his granddad. You know, I thought he was going to tell some story about his granddad in the war, you know? And he was like, you don't know who that is, kid. And I was like 18, 19 at this time. So he was like, you don't know who that is, kid. You need to find out before the end of the day and come back to me and tell me who it is. And I was like, Jesus, the man got real serious 
about a photo, right? So I go around the kitchen asking all these people, like, who is like who is it? And so one of the cooks was like, um, that's a scaffier. And he was like, he's the great great grandfather of cuisine, like of, of the rules of cuisine. And so I was just like, man, this is uh pretty remarkable that this guy has somebody on his wall that's not his family member. There must be something to this cooking thing. And that day, I just started asking a bunch of questions, and I and I learned everything I could from those first guys that I worked for. And they, basically, several of them took me under their wings because I was so inquisitive and so like wanted to know, you know. And I, um, I had another guy, Steve, who I worked for, Millstein, that gave me this book about Bernard Lois Sue committing suicide when he thought he was going to lose his Michelin star. I was so enamored by the story that he bought the book for me. And then he was telling me after that, buy as many books as you can, learn as much as you can, but don't go to culinary school. So what he literally was saying, he's like, cause they're going to steal your money and you're going to make hollandaise once when I can teach you how to make it every day. If the humidity's off, if the temperature in the room is wrong, add a little water, like all these, all these things when you make it a thousand times. And, it, it was really kind of epic. I started there and I was the only, I think it's the only place in my career that I worked for eight years. I started there as a prep cook and a dishwasher and I was a CDC by the time that I left. In three years, I became CDC. And then I went to go work for Annie Guns um, in St. Louis, which is just an iconic James Beard nominated chef. I worked there in 2007, the year he was nominated for the Beard Award. So it was just crazy. He would come in and change the menu every day. You're like, dude, what are we doing? You'd be like, the menu just be hanging up on your station. You'd be like, are we doing that today? Like right now? Like we couldn't say, talk about this yesterday. So he was just going crazy. That place is an institution in St. Louis. Super high food quality. Once again, it really taught me a lot about sourcing ingredients. Several farmers. We had a butcher shop connected to the restaurant. So they ground the beef every day for hamburgers. It was just crazy. Just the most symbiotic, one of the most symbiotic places I ever worked in the sense that the mashed potatoes didn't stay on the steam well after they was there for a certain amount of time. We made potato pancakes out of them. We never threw anything away, though. We just always repurposed everything, and it was just super cool. And then um, I uh, went to go work for Four Seasons because the first guys that I worked for said, if you ever could work for Four Seasons, they care about their people, and they get high ingredients. So um, you're going to see white truffles every day you work at the Four Seasons. And I was like, all right. It was like, we want you. You should have that experience of working with lobster a million times so you know what it feels like. From there, I went to work for Michael Mina at the Four Seasons because it was a great transfer opportunity. Then I, I opened um, the Four Seasons Orlando. And then from there, uh, found, got this connection to open the Steakhouse Ario with the Dry Edge Program in house. And... They, they was gracious enough to allow me to take two months off of work to be on television with you. <laughs> <laughs> how long how long were you on um, the CDC at Aria before uh, Top Chef came a knocking? Uh, man, uh, crazy. Less than six months. It might have been only yeah. three months. And yeah, I was like right. super nervous to just be like, all right, pay me my salary and uh, I'll see you guys in a couple of months. Like, you know, was a lot of us wasn't getting paid during that time. You know, some people was on Top Chef with us. Their jobs didn't do that for them. Whereas my job, to their credit, really realized it was something that was going to be beneficial for everybody. Yeah. So how did, how did the Top Chef, thing, Top Chef thing happen for you? Did you apply for that or did they reach out to you? How did that happen for you? 
Um, cra- crazy story. I applied, right? Every year I had a, a guy I was working with, a food and beverage director. Even when we didn't work together for maybe six years in a row, every single time they the top chef casting came out, he would text me and tell me to apply. And that particular year, for some strange reason, I don't know why that year, I was just like, all right, let me do this. I just had like this like moment where I was just sitting at home and then I, I filled out the paperwork. What I, some kind of way, I don't know why this happened, I was filling out the paperwork in the wrong year. So then I asked my job, I said, can you fly me to LA so I can go do the, the actual casting call? And they was like, yeah, we'll fly you out to LA, pay for it for you and, and go see if you can, you know, throw your, your hat, your name in the hat. So I, I go out there, I go to the place that is being held at, and it's not happening that day, right? And so I'm like, it's, this is the 28th, but on this thing, it's say Wednesday and it's a, it's a Tuesday or whatever. It's a Thursday. And so I was like, man, something's, something's off. And they was like, no, the casting's happening here tomorrow. So I come back the next day, and then they was like, nothing like that is happening here. Lights off in the restaurant. Nothing is going on. So I sit down. and was like, what am I doing wrong? And I pull up the Top Chef link, and I was in the wrong year. So then I was like, oh, my God, this is absurd. Like, I'm going to go back to my job and just say, I, I'm sorry you paid for that whole trip, but I, I – I didn't even I didn't even apply attempt to apply for it. So then I started looking at where the, the casting was being held that year, and I was off by one day at the at the restaurant. I was off by like two days at the restaurant. So I decided to go to this restaurant, uh, Chef Susan's restaurant in L.A. And I went around the back door. It was like 10 a.m. and I was like, I know somebody's here. It's a restaurant. So I went around the back kitchen and like startled the sous chef. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry to, to bother you, but was there a casting hell here? And he was like, yeah. And when he said, yeah, he was like, um, he said it was a couple days ago, but chef is coming in. I was like, can she please get me in contact with the people who do the casting? And he was like, yeah, she'll be in later. So I went around the corner to Twapmec, ate an omelet at Ludo's place, right, and just was, like, trying my best to, like, get my nerves together, you know, and I kept texting this guy, like, when's she coming in, when's she coming in? He was like, man, I'm so sorry. Chef is not coming today. He was like, it was a miss. She's coming, but I don't know what time. It's her off day. She always shows up, and but today she got something to do. So I was like, man, this is crazy. I'm going to go back to work and say nothing, right? So I was like, I looked at the papers that, that you, like, send the stuff to, and the address was in Hollywood. And I was like, man, I'm in Hollywood, right? So I was like, I got in the Uber and went to the address on the building. And I and I pushed a button on the elevator. And they was like, sir, you you must, you got to get buzzed up. Because it's like one of those situations, you got to get buzzed up to magical elves. And I was like, Jesus, I was like, I have an appointment on the, on the 11th floor, right? And the guys let me sign in, buzz me in. And I got off the elevator in the lobby at magical elves. I was like, I'm so, so sorry to bombard you guys' lobby, but uh, is there a way I can talk to somebody from Top Chef? I was like, I'm from out of town. I was like telling the whole story, and the two casting producers uh, came out the back, and they was like, 1,000%, we putting you on TV. The one lady, Aaron, she was like, I'm not supposed to say this. She was like, I love your balls. You just going to come here? I'm like, what else was I going to do? Yeah, you're like, I came from past to be here. <laughs> Like I came from a different year <laughs> to be here. <laughs> exactly. 
It was wild. Oh my God. Dude, I can't believe I've never heard that story. <laughs> yeah, that's a wild story. So, all right. So, so that was it, man. So you were like, wait, they're like this guy. Yeah, she, you know, you know how they put your kit together, right? You know, like they got to really, like, if they like you, they're going to, if they don't like you, they, they might sell you just because you'll hit a, hit a certain kind of like bad character or whatever. But if they really like you, they're going to make sure that all your things look good so that when you present it in front of the producers, you're definitely going to get picked. Like, I was shocked at how fast the interview with the producers was. Do you have to go do like the whole, the whole group? You know, there's like, I don't know, 12 producers there, all like, and stuff. it's like this crazy panel of people. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. It's like a, the worst job interview of your life, man. You're going to sit in front of nine people. Yeah. It's all the bosses. Yeah. Are and they're like, nope. <laughs> and they're like, okay, that's it. That was all we needed. And you're like, well, I didn't tell you about my dog when I was 12, you know. <laughs> I've been rehearsing this story, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah it was wild oh that's funny i don't even really remember i remember doing that interview but i can't like i don't i don't remember any questions they asked me it was all just like a blur do you remember any it was fast it was super fast i don't remember what they asked but it was super fast they she prepped Aaron prepped them with that story so then they they already heard that story so it was pretty much so before i even walked in the room i said I, they asked me two more questions and said, go, go on with your, with your life. I know they ate at your restaurant. They did. Yeah. Um, oh, gee. Yeah. So, but church of union now. Yeah. Actually on Facebook, she sent me like a Facebook messenger thing or something. And I'm right. not like, I'm not very social media savvy. <laughs> I remember, I remember I like opened it up and I read it and I was like, man, this seems like a, this seems like a prank or something. <laughs> I thought that um, I thought that Alejandro, my business partner, was fucking. <laughs> I, thought he had, I thought he had somebody send me like a thing, right? That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. So like, so I, I I hit them up. I hit up Patrick and Alejandro, and I was like, "Hey guys, I got this weird message. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what's up." And Alejandro was like, "No, man." He's like, "I didn't send you that." He's like, "You got to respond to it." And I was like, all right, cool. I'll respond. So I just responded back and said, hey, you know, what's, tell me what the story is. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I don't really know anything about it. Um, and she reached back out to me and just said that she, some, a friend of hers had visited the restaurant in Charleston. They were doing the Top Chef episode or that season in Charleston. And, um, and she wanted me to, to try out for it. Would I be willing to do it? But my business partners were like, you know, they're like, look, man, like, we're not going to tell you what you have to do or whatever. Like you do you. But like, if you tell Top Chef, no, like they called you and you say, no, I don't want to do it. You're fucking done. They're like, they're never going <laughs> to call you again. Nobody's <laughs> going to call you to do anything. And I like, no, yeah. I was like, what am I thinking? I'm not going to tell Tom and Padman. No, like that's <laughs> like, all right, I'll try. I'll try out. I didn't think, honestly, I did not think that I would get accepted. Like I, I thought I would go through the process and somewhere along the way, they'd be like, whatever, this guy's a, yeah, yeah this guy's a loose cannon or a nut job or something. <laughs> apparently Maybe. I had the right, <laughs> I had the right bag of weirdness that they, they, they liked it. <laughs> yeah. You did it twice. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> oh my God. I, I knew I wanted, I wanted chicken redemption. <laughs> Glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, 
So, uh, you know, we're, we're opening a restaurant in Denver, right? right. And the sp our space is around the corner from the Thompson Hotel where Ludo just opened Shea Maggie. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you recall this, but Ludo was the guest judge on the episode where they booted <laughs> me. So I went in there. So I went in there for lunch. <laughs> and I sat literally at the table by the pass where he was working. And I was mugging his ass. <laughs> <laughs> He, he noticed me and like it kind of like looked at me and then like kind of went to the pat like i could tell like he recognized me but didn't know who i was right right but he was like i know this fucking guy who is he? right and so i don't know if he went and talked to his manager or whatever but he ended up coming over to the table and was like hey what's up i you know he's like i thought i recognized you i didn't know what was going on and we ended up talking and i kind of busted his balls a little bit about he's like yeah, I didn't, he's like i didn't make the choice you know <laughs> And uh, but uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting how, how it went full circle. <laughs> That's awesome. That's crazy. So tell me, so you got you got eliminated on the first episode, right? Oh, you were you you went against John Tizar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, how interesting is that that you ended up full circle with him and winning a Michelin star with him? That's That's so crazy. Bizarre. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. So yeah, so full circle. You, you and John Tizar in a sudden death cook-off <laughs> episode. First episode. That's pretty aggressive how they did that. Yeah, and then he pulls out the, the, the bag of fresh black truffles. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the rule stated that everything had to be preserved <laughs> or Non-perishables. Non-perishables. Exactly. I said, okay. Yeah, I see how it is. He slipped that one past him. Yeah. God bless him for being a veteran, man. That's that's why we were rookies, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so you got booted that first episode. How, what was that experience like for you overall? Uh, I mean, first of all, like having to go into a sudden death, like quick fire elimination. Right. But then also, you know, being being kind of voted off early. Like, what was that? What was that like? Well, I never. Uh, I, it's funny. Like some people like. You know, some people who lost first episode kind of like fade away and feel like they never done nothing in their life, you know, because they lost the first episode. I never felt that way at all because probably primarily because of relationships that I built, but also when they saying one episode is worth like 10 years of exposure in this industry, I believe it to be true. Like it's a real, um, being able to be on television is a real Thing that can really get you to a wider audience and I knew that I was going to be able to use the experience to broaden my horizon and my culinary um, my culinary network really in a, in a huge sense of the word so I didn't I didn't feel as bad as other people who got kicked off like it didn't ever uh, I, I kind of took it like it's all with, with a grain of salt you know like this is something you've never done before 20,000 people apply for this every year you got chosen and right. uh you, you know, beyond a shot. I mean, I was shocked when they said my name because I knew I, I knew I cooked a banging dish, but I was yeah. like, all right, it is what it is. You did like you did like a tie like a Thai style oyster, yeah. burger, right? I remember yeah, that. Yeah, roasted over fire, man, live fire. Yeah. You were like, so I would put the blanket on the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so hot out there. Hot, hot. <laughs> and it was it wasn't like they built the fire an hour ago either. It was yeah. like 
fresh flames. <laughs> so let's talk about building those relationships, right? Because obviously that didn't happen on the show. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, as everybody got kicked off one by one, they had to, to come home and see Papa, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and most of the time, I had to talk them down. Yeah, 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 I had to talk them down. Like, no, you can't be mad. You can't be mad. I lost already, man. Let's let's go to the bar. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, hey, now you get to have a drink. Whatever you want. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> let, me, let me cook you supper. Yes, and hash it out, you know? Right. Right. Everybody need to hash it out afterwards, right? You yeah. need to be able to talk through it. Every single person. You got to yeah. talk to it through it probably for about a week, you know, before <laughs> you can you can get ah, I just did this. If I had just did that, yeah. Everybody, it would unequivocally, literally every person and yeah. go through the same experience. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, so I met up with you guys. I think so. I was like, I made about halfway. So I think it was like the seventh right. or something. Like seventh yeah. person offered but I remember, I remember getting to the, the hotel and that first, the first night, I mean, I was pretty exhausted. It was late, but, right. but like, you know, everybody's there hanging out, having dinner. Everybody's like super chill, you know? <laughs> like just coming back from the pool. Like <laughs> I was like, man, this is like fucking paradise. over here. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh man. Yeah. So. After Top Chef, go back to the real world. You've made a name Sorry. for yourself. You're good. What is what was that like returning to Florida after after the episode and and you know having to like reintegrate back into your job and into your you know your community? Were people you know, like I mean, super supportive? Like what was going on? You know, the craziest thing is knowing you've done something. And then uh, having to wait so long for the rest of the people that surround you to see it is pretty, pretty strange. You know, you've had this experience in real time and then other people watch it in the future with you. Um, so we did a watch party for it and, it and it was it was super cool. Everybody showed me a ton of love, thought that the, the, the words that I said and the way that I portrayed myself were cool which is which is probably great because i didn't get the opportunity to to do something foolish you know yeah. um, so like you know being able to have like that experience was uh it was eye-opening and it was also like very interesting how much that one little thing springboarded so many opportunities to go to aspen to go to charleston food and wine to go to the kentucky derby to go to uh, all of these food festivals in the country, it, it was pretty cool, you know, to be able to like, I think that our season did this interesting thing to Top Chef that changed it from being camaraderie over a competition. So you now see seasons from our season beyond where everybody is together, right? They do three events in a, in a year, four events. And you see like that kind of wolf pack uh, mentality from those relationships that were built. Because prior to our season, there was always a certain amount of animosity, you know, that, that people kind of had a chip on their shoulders. And we all was the type of people that was like, oh, you don't have salt here, take mine. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. we didn't want to we didn't want to win if it wasn't fair. That just was the thing. That's just the way that we are as, as people. Um, and I think that that's trickled down beyond our season. Yeah, it's good to see some integrity in, in the competition. You know what I mean? Right. 
Although, although I would argue that Katsuji probably is still uh, trying to sabotage uh, the shit out of him. I, I think you that there's comment. some truth in that. You can comment if you want to. You don't have no, to. No, no, no. There's definitely some truth in it. Yeah. Uh, definitely. What a yeah. fool. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, what was that? So, you know, doing the watch parties, like seeing yourself on TV on a national, you know, televised Bravo thing. What was that? What was that like for you? Were you guys at the restaurant? We had Aria. Yeah, we did it at the restaurant. We did it in Aria and the PDR. It, it, it was, uh, it was strange, you know. I, I don't want to stand there and watch it, obviously, because it's weird. Why why do you want to stand there and watch yourself? Like it's it's you want to watch it like um in the privacy of your own home or like yeah. I to a certain extent I didn't even want to see it, you know, because you want to see how it came out, you know, right. versus like really wanting to see yourself. You want to see what the edit looks like mm -hmm. because you were there and you know what really happened. So you want to see how they translate that to the viewers, which is the coolest part, right? Like yeah. it's cut, you know, you see yourself walking down the street in Charleston in slow motion. You're like, that's pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? It's like, all right, all right. <laughs> were, were you happy with the way uh, you were edited in, in that episode? Well, you know, Tom, yeah, Tom, Tom pushed for the whole like race thing. Like he let me say about the blood of slaves running through my veins. And they tried to, they they had some some definitely some conversations about editing it out and Tom was like if you look at the whole season and unpack it you can't take that away from it because it started this whole journey that was like time place race food you know Charleston is a very one of those places that don't shy away from its history it's very present and evident that this is the history of this area and they I don't want to use the word celebrated but they definitely don't hide from it. And it's yeah. truthful and it's honest. And being able to incorporate that part of the spirit of the city, being able to be seen in the, in the whole season from Edna Lewis to, to Rodney Scott, you know, you you see that it was unpacking something that started on the first day, which is, yeah. is just being a, a thread in the fabric of something bigger is, is important. And, and they let it air out that same way, which was so cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that they, I'm glad that they were true to that narrative too, because right. Cause I think that, I think you're absolutely right about Charleston, right? It's like, you can't talk about Charleston without accepting that as being part of the history. Right? Yes. Not that it's not that it's celebrated, like you said, cause it's not right. It's like, but right. it is, it happened. Like you can't right. deny it. And, and it's part of American history that we need to like, right. be real with. Exactly. So that's how you met John Tizar, I suppose, right? <laughs> that is how I met John Tizar. <laughs> what, what, a, what a meeting. Yeah. What a meeting. So how important were the black truffles to the menu that you were, that you were preparing out of knife and spoon? Was that like a staple? We, all, we always had truffles, you know, uh, yeah, just to bust John's balls, if, if nothing else. Put some troubles um, on it. It'll be good. Yeah, we, we, we um, I mean, I think I've been, I've been having trouble since that episode aired, uh, just for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, because I love troubles, but also because uh, it's a, it's just a hilarious thing that every time I get a new truffle, I can tag John in the photo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag John. Yeah, it, it, it was cool. It's, I mean, it's, I think that John is a very interesting person. You know, like. We've been doing this job for 20 years plus, 
Uh, he's been doing a job for 40 years plus, which is just crazy. Like sometimes you sit around John and you tell his stories about food or, or food history and he was present, you know, or like things happen while he was a, a, a cook and a chef, like, you know, getting getting uh, three star reviews from the New York Times, you know, like that's something that that uh, I would look at when the food section came out every week. And it was very interesting, like John was a part of the city at that time. So it's it's pretty remarkable to like listen to John and for as much as like you have these like battles between modern or contemporary and then like super old school with John, it's, it's also good to know where things stem from and to to be able to reference somebody who was standing there when it when it happened is just pretty cool. I'm pretty sure John Tizar um staged with um, a scoffier. How involved was was working was John working with you on the menu? Uh, so, like, did you guys collaborate on a lot of stuff, or was he uh, super involved? Uh, especially like initially, there was. Um, I mean. For one, it's a steakhouse. So the framework of a steakhouse menu is already set. You know, we're going to have really good cuts and then we're going to offer a la carte sides and, and raw bar and salads, right? It's pretty, pretty par for the course. That menu was written 100 years ago. John Tezos touches as far as his dishes that he wanted to have on the menu, whether it was like his crab that he does in the scampi style or his lobster that he does in like a spicy, like lobster gloss and, you know, like all these things that John really want to have represented was on the menu. And then like from, um, from a sides, from a rotating specials, from a sourcing uh, was, was pretty high for me, right? Like if I'm going to take John's Caesar's food and, and be able to contribute to it, I, I was like, let's take the simplicity of these dishes or, the nostalgia from these dishes in some sense, and let's bring them to the 21st century by getting the best possible things or making sure that they're as honest as they can be because we're getting the best possible ingredients, um, which is undeniable, right? And then um, the the stuff that's the most Instagrammable on the menu is what's mine, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. The super, super tweezed out. That's awesome. <laughs> So when you, um, did you, did you know that you were going to move on to somewhere else? Let's see, you were at Knife and Spoon for a year and a half so, right? Uh, that's a great question. We purchased the first meat for the restaurant before the pandemic, sent it to Texas to be dry aged. And then like around the beginning of opening, we had one year old dry aged steak already. And somebody asked the question, like, how can you serve this steak 240 days? It was 240. And it was like, uh, and we was telling the story, like we had it, we had already purchased yeah. it for the restaurant. So um, it, it was pretty cool. <laughs> like a strange- Sent that to Dallas. Exactly. <laughs> we dry aged it. It was, it was bought with, we paid for it here. It got dry aged in, in Dallas, right? So, which is one of the beauties of having like multiple locations. But it was, it was, it was, uh, when I was quitting, I was, I had this opportunity and then I was like, all right, this is a quality of life opportunity, a job that I just was in Napa Valley for, I don't know, six days. And I didn't have to stress out about the restaurant, you know, the same way you do 
in a, in a different kind of environment. So yeah, um, for quality of life, I, I was really looking at this role for quite some time. But I said to them, you can do whatever you need to do if you hire somebody before me, but I can't leave before this time frame. I'm not going to have done all this work and not accept my award, not stand on stage and say, like, I've earned this, yeah, uh, people. which is just the right thing to do. And also to celebrate with the team and also to, to yeah, you know. The, the people that, yeah, you, the guys that bust Yeah, we built people. something that, that's that's pretty iconic. Yeah, how far how far of the awards did you did you know that you guys had won it? Did you know ahead of time? Oh, uh, no, no. This is kind of wild. Michelin ate in the restaurant two nights in a row, which was the, the second night was the night of the awards. So the second night, I was like, man, we don't win nothing. They're they not going to see a steak, man. They food will take two hours, man. I don't care. But but they ate the day before because uh, they were staying at the hotel and the awards was at the at the hotel. So we was in the building um, to some degree because uh, of we hosted it at the hotel. Now, they still didn't give you no... They, they said something at dinner that would make you... They was like... They would just like be there. You, you should be there. Because John Tizar was at the table saying... That he's so nervous that he might not even show up tomorrow. He like called me in the morning, said he in his closet, like back in the day when he was when he was uh, participating too much in extracurricular activities, you know. Yeah. So this man was like freaking out uh, because everybody had told me that there was a call, right? So everybody's like, they usually call you before the ceremony. They call you. They call you. They call you. And they got all these videos of people getting this call. And then John was like, I didn't get a call. Like, I mean, this started at 10 a.m., no call. Noon, no call. Uh, 12.45, no call. 1.15, no call. I'm like, John. 4.45, no call. I'm like, John. I said, we don't got it, man. We don't got it. Forget it. <laughs> We're just going to the ceremony. And then in the ceremony, I think they had, like, basically a time that they was going to release the results right, from their PR company on behind the scenes. So in the ceremony at like 8.15, there was a press release released and people saw it inside of the ceremony. So people just started coming up to us saying congratulations. But I didn't believe that. I said, I want to see it. I'm not believing that until I'm on the stage with the star. And sure enough, it was only, you know, only four restaurants in the town that got a star. No restaurants in Tampa that got a star and and 11 restaurants in, in Miami, they got a start. And it was it was pretty true. It was pretty honest. Like the guy said, you pick these restaurants up, put them in Singapore, put them in Hong Kong, put them in D.C., put them in New York. They will still win a start. They meet the criteria. They um, have, have been judged more than once. I cringe when he said that, though, because one guy I knew was a Michelin inspector. But a couple, if they, we've been there three times. I'm like, Jesus. Like, that makes you like, oh, man. Because you know it's a restaurant. Some days you don't knock it out of the park. So you 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 definitely know if it's a, a person asking the right questions, and you you know that they must be somebody. But it was a, person, a few people was pretty incognito. We sat there and, and, and went through the process just like everybody else and was, like, super ecstatic to receive that, that honor when it's only – three other restaurants in the town that could say they have that honor. And Michelin, when they said that they would, it would get a star anywhere, I believe that to be an honest depiction. Now, the crazy thing is if you put it in New York City or Chicago or these places, it's a hundred other restaurants they got to go to. So you might be 
at the end of the list for them, they might not never even touch your restaurant because of the volume of high quality restaurants and the, the concentration versus like in a town like Orlando, you it's very glaring where they have to go because of the level of service, the level of food quality. So I believe them to be telling the truth. Like they, they, it was super anonymous. Yeah. That's great. So you only, you only knew awesome. they were there for one of the, for one of the, the dinners that they were, they were eating there. You were aware that they were yeah. there. Other than that, you were, you were unaware. Michelin inspectors, we were unaware at all. It's just, I had a hunch that one of these guys was this guy, but the Michelin executives, they ate at knife and spoon. And when they sent the emails, if you read it in between the line, it was like, we really want a table. If we can't get a table, it's okay. They were super polite. It was like the the, the president of, of Michelin, and they were they they you were also awesome. table man. You always get a right, table. right. It's like come on, man. <laughs> then then they they ate after the awards while I want to go out celebrating. I'm like expediting their table. You know, at the end of the night, I'm like Jesus. John's sitting at the bar. I think he I think he had a tear in his eyes, man. He couldn't even do nothing else. He just was looking at the stall. And I'm like, man, I'm expediting chefs, uh, tasting menus, Michelin's at five tables. I'm like, John, just sit down. Yeah. I want to just go celebrate with, with with the city, you know? Yeah. It was cool. That's awesome, it was man. Super cool. Congratulations, brother. I just, cool. uh, we're going to end up talking about this all the time. I'm going to call you up and just be like, tell me again about the star. Tell me about the star. <laughs> It's, it's all we ever want, right? We we all wanted wanted back in the day, you know. Like those were the people that we was looking at. That was the that was the standard for restaurants, right? I think James Beard is equally as as prestigious in America, but this is Michelin is an international award, man. The Thomas Keller um, and Danny Belou's foundation mentor for the Bocuse Dior. They mm -hmm. tagged us in a photo that night, like tagged my name specifically. It was like pretty wild, you know, like internationally, you just became recognized with the restaurants in the world, the few restaurants in the world that hold this prestige. So it's, it's pretty, that was all these things like, does it really matter, right? All these people was writing all these things. And I was like, man, just let yeah. these people celebrate. Like, yeah. let them yeah. have a moment. Don't rain on my parade, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does it really matter now? Because we got TikToks, people that can come to your restaurant and blow it up. Like, yeah, that's cool, but nothing says that you hold the standard, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing says that. And I mean, you know when you've done that work. Like, we did that work. We was constantly doing that work. I did it the day that we won the store. I went yeah, really yeah. right back to the past. Yeah. Like, put that apron on and get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put the, this, with the jacket on, the Michelin jacket. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't get any sauce on it. <laughs> but we right. I'm still making sure people have good meals, you know? And Michelin was, like, happy, like, taking photos. They was, like, people was just coming in the restaurant, clapping. It, it was crazy. Yeah, that's great. So let's fast forward to these days. So, so you win the award, and um, now it's time for a little – quality of life adjustment well you know after winning the award it was it was it was crazy the restaurant like how busy it was so like that was a big adjustment to go like adding 50 80 reservations every single day on top of what you was normally doing so that was a quick adjustment period and a and a time of like 86 and stuff you like i had no clue who's gonna go this crazy like instead of getting 40 fish give me 60 like what like who would ever think that Mm -hmm. um so that adjustment period was pretty hard and heavy really fast and then um 
I took the job on the 29th was my first day. So I only took about a week off, maybe five days off before I started my, my new job. So that was, it was, it was, they needed me to start. So I, I could, I would have took more time off, but they needed me to start. So <laughs> it was because it was so busy. Like I didn't know we was going to get that bombarded. I knew, I thought that I would get an extra day off here or there. And before I took this job, but it just got crazy. Yeah. And, um, I, I took this job literally because of the quality of life. We have about four or five months of the year where it's crazy, four months really in totality where it's crazy. And then for the rest of the time of the year, you can, like I was off for six days and, and, and nobody batted an eye, right? Yeah. That don't really happen in the, in the real food world. You know, you have your challenges and troubles and problems, but it's a private, um, private membership. We, we get to know the people's palate. I, I think that that's kind of cool too. Like you get mm-hmm. to know people and get to be able to um, offer them things that you just know that they're going to enjoy because you're seeing the same customers and you you becoming a part of a community really. Yeah. Um, which is which is just a cool aspect of the culinary field that I've never been in. So yeah. it, it's great to keep growing. So what do you so what are you responsible for now? At so you're at, every, you're, at the, you're at the Dunes um, in Naples. Yeah, everything. We don't have shipping and receiving, so we do shipping and receiving. We do, uh, we do food costs. We do invoice coding. Um, we even put it in our budget the taxes for uh, for the staff labor. Like we yeah. even responsible. That is even coming out of my budget. I've never seen that line before come out of a budget, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's pretty 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 remarkable. Like we touching really everything, um, and then we I just changed the menu. I added like. I did an octopus niçoise salad, which is kind of cool. Like it's hitting everything. Like you're hitting the palette of all these things that everybody wants, but you're still making it kind of contemporary. We're working on, we're working on building this real cool like pizza program because it's because mm-hmm. the club exists in a community. So I've been working on this dough for weeks, and now we got the dough dialed in. And now I got to get the pizza oven to cook it properly. And then we did all these cool names of the pizza, like meat sweats and. And supreme logo for the supreme pizza like yeah. the shoe like the shoes so like we're just doing all this cool stuff like adding this um verbiage and adding this value that's instead of buying it we bread in it you know instead of buying the chicken wings we brining them smoking them and then we fry them or we grill them for you like we're just doing all these like it's good to cook really really simple food but with technique right yeah. so you just still you like you're putting like a chefy technique on it, but it's just, it's a chicken wings at the end of the day, right? But they're right. so delicious because you they, they went through three steps before they got to your plate. So that's the things that I'm working on. I'm trying to really simplify, simplify like the technique in my head. And we also have like a ton of room to do like guest chef dinners, wine dinners. Uh, we do a big party every month where we do like, we're doing a whole roasted alligator this month. It, it's crazy. We're doing all, we do, we do stuff that, and I'm just wrapping my brain around. I'm just wrapping my brain around my, the world that I was just in was for profit. And then this word, world is like, oh, we open just to lose money, but don't lose too much money. You're like, okay, all right. So last year we lost 3 million, this year, Let's lose 2.5, right? So it's, it's pretty pretty crazy. Nice. That's wild. It's just different. It's so different. You know, like the way your brain have to think. It's going to take me probably six months to even wrap my brain around it, you know? Yeah. 
Cool, man. Well, listen, we've been chatting for about an hour. I know you got uh, some pizzas to figure out. So (laughs) I'm going to let you get back to it. Yes, Um, sir. Thanks thanks for catching up with me, man. I definitely want to get you back on the podcast. I want to talk about maybe some of the dinners that we did, cooking for Chappelle, the Black Lives Matter. At your place, yeah. Yeah, The dinner we did was bomb. Yeah, and then we, I'd like to talk too about maybe we'll circle back on the um, you know the celebration of Black Chefs. Um, right. You know, you and I did that tasting menu that was super fun. Exactly. Um, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and and telling your story and uh, yes, congratulations, sir. brother, man. I'm so Thank proud. You. I love you, my brother. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, I'm gonna come visit down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do something. All right, take it easy. Later. Peace. Bye.